I want to tell you about a couple of my favorite people this morning. Um, this is a picture of me with them uh, last September. Uh, but the story and, and our relationship actually begins with a phone call. Uh, Pat, on the left there, uh, called me and I answered the phone and he introduced himself and he said, I, I, I want to start a church and I'm wondering if you could help me. Now, generally for me, the answer to that question is yes, but you know, there, there's some things you kind of want to know before you commit to something like helping someone start a church. And the first one was, where? And he says, well, uh, we want to start a church in Caldwell, Texas. That is what Google Maps are for. Because I had no idea where Caldwell, Texas was, and I'd bet real money that there's very few in this room who have any idea where Caldwell, Texas is. If you are a college football fan, it's like this. About halfway between UT and Austin and Texas A&M in College Station, there is a town called Caldwell of about 4,000 people in a county of less than 20,000 people. Now, I have to be honest, my first thought was, why would you want to plant a church there? What was really rolling through my mind is why would you even want to continue to live there? A little bit of my California bias coming out there. Okay, I, I know where, but, you know, I'll, I'll ask the question a little bit, not, you know, better way. You know, why? Why do you want to start a church there? And Pat's answer was much more spiritual than my negative bias towards small East Texas towns. He says, well, uh, you know, we really want to start a church here where everyone is welcome. Well, that got me curious. What does everyone mean in a place like Caldwell, Texas? So I asked him, he said, well, you know, first of all, we'd like to have a church where the people in town who can't afford a suit can come. That was a little strange to me, right? I would have an issue with suits in church for reasons other than their affordability. Um, he said, but, you know, there, there's a lot of addicts in our town. Uh, people really struggle with drug and alcohol addiction. So we'd like to have a place where those people would feel like they were welcome and could come to church. And, you know, there's a lot of people in our town who've been kicked out of all of the other churches. And we'd like to have a place where, where they could come. Now, shunning's kind of a, you know, really negative thing, right? But if you can imagine what it's like to be shunned in a small town, that's horrible, and so I thought, wow, you know what? Um, this sounds kind of interesting. I I'm in. And so uh, for the next year, I did my best to explain to Pat the ins and outs of starting a new church. And Pat did his best to explain to me the ins and outs of living in a small East Texas town. Now, it turns out, which I discovered very quickly, that Pat was actually from the East Bay here in the Bay Area. And so he was very adept at explaining this to my California-born and bred mind. He ended up there when he married Hilda. That's why he stayed in this small town. Uh, so fast forward to last September. It was the third birthday of the church, and Pat invited me to come and to speak for their celebration that they were having that day. And that was easy to say yes to, and so I went and uh, just spent the day meeting all kinds of amazing people. And I, I lost count at some point in, in the day of how many people said these exact words to me. This church changed my life. I got there early and met the girl that was, you know, sitting at the back of the computers who would be clicking through the slides that would be on the screen. She looked to me about the same age as the Mats and Bose girls that volunteer here at Adventure. But after, you know, talking with her and making sure we had everything figured out, as we were walking away, Pat says to me, a year ago she was in jail. She got arrested for dealing drugs. And she came here when she got out. 
I would have never guessed that. One of my favorite people that I met um, came up to me with just this huge smile on his face, big black cowboy hat. The smile, though, revealed what looked like years of meth addiction. You just couldn't miss it. But he had to come tell me how he wasn't addicted anymore. He was part of the church's recovery program and helping other people in town get into the program and and get off of meth. Oh, and, and by the way, there wasn't anybody there that day in a suit. It was so much fun. And I love to tell people about Patton Hilda. I actually do tell people about Patton Hilda. I've told their story literally all over the world because I think they have started exactly the kind of church that Jesus would start. But I'm curious, how does that make you feel? How does a church full of messy people, how does an adventure full of messy people like that make you feel? Does that make you excited? Or does it make you a little uncomfortable? Let's agree about this. People are, in fact, messy, right? Have you read the news lately? I find the news shocking these days. I actually try to avoid it because if you read any details about what's actually happening in the Middle East right now, the brutality level is like reading about some kind of ancient warfare that could only seemingly have happened thousands of years ago, but it's happening over there today, and you realize that these people have hated each other for that long, and these kinds of things have been going on for that long, and there are things like that that are happening in our country seemingly almost every day. Look around yourself, um, the mess that relationships are in. I mean, maybe not your own, but, but think about the people you know. Broken relationships, dysfunctional families, people that are struggling to get along. Think about people you may know who are struggling with addictions, things they want to stop doing, they don't seem to be able to stop doing, and those things keep dragging them down. There's mess everywhere. If all that sounds kind of unfamiliar to you, I would guess that maybe you live under a rock because you really don't have to get out there very far to see all of that mess. So maybe this is a better question. How do you feel about a church full of people who are changing? A church where people who really did once hate other people learn to love other people and treat them the way that Jesus would. A a place where people whose relationships have been a mess and have been full of all kinds of dysfunction discover what it is to forgive and to heal and, and to build lifelong and lasting relationships. A place where people who have never in their life before been able to stop find the strength to stop and become the people that God really intended them to be. See, that's Jesus' kind of people, and that's Jesus' kind of church, but it makes some people really uncomfortable. Whether you've got a Bible or a device, um, find your way to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be uh, looking there. We're in this series that we've called Meetup. We're looking at people that Jesus met and the interactions that happened in those meetups to see what we can learn about ourselves, about our relationships with others. And this week, the meetup is between Jesus and a man named Matthew. 
And you'll notice that the scripture looking up is in a book called Matthew. It was written by him. And so even though it's written in the third person, he's writing about himself. He's writing about events that he was there to experience. This is what happened when Jesus and Matthew met up. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, we don't have any real comparison. Like, I know that there are maybe people that you have really difficult relationships, like bad blood, and if you see them in the grocery store, you like turn the other way and walk because you you'd really rather not them see you or have to interact with them. Maybe I have some people like that in my life, but I'm not aware of any particular kind of person in our culture, let's say in our community, that all of us would have bad blood with. There's no common villain that all of us have a negative experience with. But in Jesus' day, tax collectors were that person because they had cheated everybody. And so nobody liked them. I would imagine that the only person that liked a tax collector was another tax collector because they could get together and talk about how much money they together had cheated everybody else out of. What's also interesting, which maybe you've never thought about, is that the rest of Jesus' disciples, these men that he invited to follow him and be his learners, were for the most part religious men. Now, they were ordinary men. You know, they were fishermen and things like that. They, they weren't you know, high-powered or, or anything like that, but they were respectable men, religious men. They were good Jewish men who went to the synagogue and knew the scriptures and gave their offerings and made their sacrifices. Respectable men at least until right now, when Jesus invites this tax collector to join their group. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Jesus partied with tax collectors and sinners. Yes, I just said Jesus partied. Now, I'm not implying that he was drunk, I'm not implying that he was wasted, but if you actually read about Jesus' life, what you'll discover is that he went to a lot of parties. We could probably do a whole series of messages that was just all the parties that Jesus went to and the things we could learn from Jesus and how to attend a party well. It was just part of his lifestyle, part of what he did. And when you have a party, who do you invite? Your friends. And if you're a tax collector, who are your friends? Other tax collectors. So who's at your party? Other tax collectors. And that's what we discover happened at Matthew's party. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why do you, does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, first of all, this is really kind of weird, isn't it? Like, Matthew's writing down this story, and all of a sudden, these characters emerge from offstage, the Pharisees. Who are they? Where did they come from? Why are they there? Well, the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were the religious leaders of the day. Um, I would guess that they were there not because they were invited, but because uh, Matthew's hometown was a, a place called Capernaum. It was a village, probably a fishing village, just on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. Archaeologists have dug it up and looked at the ruins there and figured that in Jesus' day it was a town of about 1,500 people. Now, if a tax collector throws a big party in a town of 1,500 people, how much of a secret do you think that is? Not, right? 
Everybody in town knows there's a party going on. And the Pharisees apparently invited themselves to come see what's happening at this party, to to check out what's going on. What I find interesting is that they approach Jesus' disciples. Now, I don't know this. I wasn't there. I just have a suspicion that kind of over here is the party with Jesus and Matthew and all of Matthew's tax collector friends And kind of here, right on the outside, are Jesus' disciples kind of wondering what's really going on here and not quite sure how to engage with the people at this party. And from over here come the Pharisees. And so who are the first people they find to talk to? Jesus' disciples hanging out at the edge of the party. And what is their question? Why does your teacher eat with such scum? By the way, the single biggest indicator that you or someone else has an issue, a negative bias towards a group of people, is when one of two things happen. Either A, you call them by a name, or B, you simply refer to them as them. And when them goes from them to those people, it's a pretty good indicator that whoever is saying that has a real issue with whoever those people are. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I love when Jesus does this. And again, if you read the scripture, you'll find out he does this a lot. He loved to answer questions that weren't asked to him. So, uh, you know, kind of the good part about being God in a body, right, is when people talk about you over there, you know what they're saying. And Jesus would hear those things, and then he would address them directly. He did it all the time. And in this case, he's saying to the Pharisees, there are no healthy people. Don't miss the sarcasm of Jesus' last sentence. He says, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. There are people, Matthew's friends, who know they are sinners. And there are people, the Pharisees, who think they are righteous. Hmm, what does that mean to think you're righteous? I think what Jesus is saying is that they're just as unhealthy as the people over here that are Matthew's friends. The difference is not their condition, but their admission, their understanding about who they really are. Do you know anybody like this? You know, my nose is really stuffy and my head's all clogged up and I can't stop coughing and I'm all clammy because I think I have a fever, but I'm not sick. Know anybody like that? No, no, we're talking physically, you know, just physically sick, right? It's kind of called denial, but what we really need to see here is that the Pharisees aren't any healthier than the tax collector scum. They just think they are. They're pretending they are. They're hiding behind who they really are because there are no healthy people. We're all sick with sin. We all need a cure. And this wasn't a new idea that Jesus taught. This wasn't something that Jesus came and said for the very first time. 
he is quoting a very well-known prophet, a man named Isaiah who lived 700 years before Jesus. If you want to do something really fascinating, read Isaiah and look at all the things he says about when and where and how Jesus would be born and die and live his life. It's crazy how much he gets right 700 years in advance. But he also wrote this, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Now, after Jesus died, a Pharisee named Saul began to follow Jesus, and he wrote this, for everyone is sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. How do you react to that? Now, my experience is most people, even very unreligious people, get it. The problem people have is when that idea is communicated with the kind of self-righteous attitude that the Pharisees had. Just think about your own life. Have you ever done anything that afterwards you realized that was wrong? Yeah. Have you ever known something was wrong, thought something was wrong, but chose to do it anyway? Yeah. So what is Jesus telling me that I don't already know about myself? Nothing, really. Here's the important thing. Change begins by admitting we need it not hiding it. I ride a bike for exercise. Yes, I'm one of those guys you see out on the road in spandex on a bike looking like he needs to get someplace really in a hurry. Last night was gorgeous, by the way. I left my house at about 7 o'clock, rode about 25 miles out around the airport. It was awesome. While I was doing that, I drank about a gallon of liquid. That's a lot of sweat. Let's just be honest about what that really is. That's a lot of sweat. So when I get home after that bike ride and I come in the house and I see Mandy, my wife, and I want to give her a hug and a kiss and say, I'm home, and she puts her hand like this and says, no, you stink, she's right, right? That's the fact. I do. And trying to hide it or pretend it's not true won't change anything. A shower will, but hiding it won't. The Pharisees weren't healthy. They were just hiding. And people who are hiding don't ask for help, ever. But help is exactly what they needed. It's what we all need because sick people need a cure. That's what Jesus says. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people too. And since there are no healthy people, we all need a doctor. Can you imagine performing surgery on yourself. How's that sound? I've been a pastor for a long time. A church that I was a part of, a woman in our church named Peggy, was having knee replacement surgery. And so I swung by the hospital in the morning, stopped, see how she was doing, have a prayer with her. And I came into the pre-op area where she was waiting for her surgery. And I walked in the door and I could just tell. I mean, once she was this person, normally smiling, happy, got a very bubbly kind of personality. I just walked in, I could tell something was wrong. She just was down. Her face was down. Her shoulder, I mean, everything, face, body, part. Like, I'm thinking, wow, this is not good right before surgery. I, something really wrong is going on. And so I just went over and I, I said, hey, you look really down. What's going on? And she said, well, I just saw my surgeon. I, I asked him again if he would let me watch my surgery, and he said no. I think the words that wanted to come out of my mouth were, are you crazy? This is a surgery that involves power tools. 
I think I managed to say something like, oh, that, that must be really disappointing. <laughs> but I kind of get it. Uh, see, Peggy had been an operating room nurse. That's, that had been her profession. She actually knew the surgeon that was doing the surgery. She'd worked in an operating room with him. I think she was having a hard time making the transition from the one who helps, the one who heals, to the one who needs to be helped, the one who needs healing. But that's what we all need. And in Jesus' metaphor, where sickness represents sin, Jesus is more than the doctor. He's the cure. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. I read verse 23 earlier. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look at verse 24. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Those few sentences say so much. Sin, like sickness, has consequences. Since we all sin, we all face those consequences. So both sin and its consequences are very real in our lives. But even though Jesus never sinned, He stepped in. He redeemed us by taking the consequences of all sin, all of my sin, all your sin, all the world's sin, on Himself when He died on the cross, And because Jesus did that, this is the simplest way I can say it, it's like you and I never did anything wrong. Can you imagine that? Really? Now, I don't see many kids in there this morning. I think if there's some kids in here and they were sharp kids, they would right now be thinking, that is the way that I get ungrounded or I get my screen time back. I just tell mom and dad that because of Jesus, it's like I never did anything wrong wrong. It's kind of humorous, but it's actually how it works. They'd be on the right track because change isn't something we do. It isn't even something we can do. It's all about what Jesus has already done. Change is something Jesus does for us. And Jesus is the only one who can change us. Let's review. There are no healthy people, right? Because this is a metaphor, and all of us have done something wrong. No perfect people. Jesus has, by what he did on the cross, made it like nothing's ever been done wrong by us and restored a right relationship for us with God. That's a great kind of perfect, happy ending story. Roll the credits on the movie, and we're done. Except guess what? That is not what this meetup between Jesus and Matthew and his friends and the Pharisees is all about. This meetup is about how people who have gotten well treat people who are still sick. Jesus tells us healed people show mercy. Sandwiched between Jesus' words about the sick and the healthy, he says, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want to show you, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. He's quoting another prophet, Hosea, who says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The Pharisees who crashed the party were experts in the scripture. I promise they knew these words. But they had failed to do them. And this wasn't a forgetful kind of fail. You know, the, I pull in my driveway and just as I'm turning off the car, remember I was supposed to stop at the grocery store on the way home. 
That's forgetfulness. This isn't forgetfulness. This is just not getting it. Jesus described them as thinking they were righteous. That thinking that they were better than others, and in fact so good that they themselves didn't need God's mercy, in fact kept them not only from showing it and sharing it, but also from receiving it. Again, listen to Paul in Romans chapter 3. Can we boast then that what we have, that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. There are no bragging rights as followers of Jesus. We have not done anything to make ourselves right. Jesus did everything for us. Knowing my need for mercy and finding it helps me see others' need for mercy and want to show it to them. What Jesus did isn't just for me, isn't just for us. Jesus' mercy is for everyone. So come as you are. I think if you really understand that, if you really understand what is happening in this meetup with Jesus, with Matthew and his friends and the Pharisees and his disciples at this party, it will change everything about how you see every person you meet and how you interact with them. Because the most significant factor in how you see other people and how you treat other people is how you actually see yourself and understand what Jesus has done for you. Let me say that again. The most significant factor in how you will see other people and how you will interact with them is how you see yourself and understand what Jesus has done for you. If some of you haven't figured it out from listening to me, I rarely write in an office. I, I like to write in our sunroom, but in the summertime, it gets really warm really fast out there. So I go find a coffee shop somewhere. I have a couple favorites over in Midtown. And so as I was writing this this week, I was hanging out in the coffee shop and I began to think, you know, here I'm writing these words and I'm looking around saying, so what about these people that I see in the coffee shop right now all around me? You know, there's the barista that I met when I came in and ordered my coffee and he asked me about my day and how it was going and what I was doing and I told him that I was writing and he asked what I was writing. He says, well, I'm going to be speaking at a church on Sunday and so I'm, I'm writing my speech and he says, well, Man, I don't, I don't know how you could do that. I said, if I get up in front of 10 people, I get all sweaty and my, my knees go weak. And I thought, wow, that's interesting because you can talk to every single person who walks in this coffee shop. But that, that's what he thought. And I'm sitting there looking back over there thinking, so how do I see him? Do I just see him as another midtown hipster? Or do I see him as a person that Jesus' mercy is for? There was the guy who was sitting at, at the, the, the table right next to me and um, we talked a little bit as I first came in, and after a little while, he needed to go put money in the meter that he was parked at. He said, hey, could you watch my stuff while I go outside? I said, sure, I'll be glad to. And he walked out leaving his brand new MacBook and his brand new iPhone sitting on the table right there next to me. And then about an hour later, he went back outside again to take a phone call, except this time not only, he, you know, he had his phone this time, but he left his credit card sitting right there on the table next to me. So how do I see him? Do I just see him as a gullible coffee shop patron? Or, or do I see him as someone that Jesus' mercy is for? 
there was the gay couple that, that came in and sat right in front of me, and the way the coffee shop was arranged, I really try not to look at what other people are doing in coffee shops, but their screens were literally right in front of me you know, as I'm looking out the window, and they were both looking at pictures of the same dog, so I assumed that that was their dog, and I didn't hear the conversation. They were talking about something related to that. Um, how do I see them? Do I see them as people I don't understand or whose lifestyle I disagree with, or do I see them as people who... Jesus' mercy is for. I mean, think about your relationships. I mean, think about your own family, um, especially maybe the people that are in your family that are not followers of Jesus. How do you see them? What's your perception of them? What are your thoughts towards them? Do you see them as people whose Jesus, who Jesus' mercy is for? Um, what about your neighbors? Do you know you have neighbors? I find that most of us find our neighbors really easy to ignore. We don't even know they exist most of the time. Is that how Jesus would see and interact with people that his mercy is for? What about your coworkers, the people that you work with? I would guess that um, some of your coworkers may look a lot like the people at Matthew's party. And there might be a lot of times that the kinds of conversations that they have at work make you really uncomfortable. Do you wish that they were more like you just so that you would be more comfortable around their conversations? Or do you wish they were more like you because they understood that Jesus' mercy was for them? I'm aware that this idea could make some of you uncomfortable Somewhere, I probably would say in my experience, in many places, the idea is taught that Christians shouldn't hang out with people who are not Christians. And so there's a really good chance that somewhere in your life, someone has taught you that. But this teaching is fundamentally flawed because it misses exactly what Jesus himself did. I do most of my study online, scriptures and things that I'm looking up. And so when I was writing this message, I had Googled this phrase, Jesus friend of sinners. I was just kind of curious. You know, that's how Jesus gets labeled. I thought, I wonder what kinds of things I'll find about that. And right at the top of the list at the time, I, there, there was a, a Christian blog, a pretty popular Christian blog, that there was a series of posts about this idea, and it jumped out in the results. So I went and I read it, and I read some of the comments. And essentially, it was this big, long blog trying to make the argument that when Jesus was at this party at Matthew's house, that the tax collectors and sinners that were there that Jesus was hanging out with weren't actually people who didn't follow Jesus. They were only the tax collectors and sinners who had already made the decision to follow Jesus, and that's why they were at the party, and that's why Jesus was hanging around with them. And I read all that kind of twisted logic, and I said to myself, huh? Does this person really think that's how that worked? Now, I know, again, we have lots of stories about Jesus. There were lots of tax collectors and lots of sinners who did choose to follow Jesus. Absolutely, we know that. But you know why I think they did? I think they did because Jesus was the kind of person who hung out with them, who liked them, and who loved them before they followed him. You ever think about the fact that that's what he did for you and me? What he did for us? If you're hanging around with people who are 
getting you to do things you shouldn't. That is a little bit of a different circumstance, and my suggestion to you would be you probably don't want to hang around with those people. But if you're not hanging around with certain people because they're sick and you're healthy, that might not be the right perspective. Stop. See, if you're avoiding people who need mercy, how are they ever going to find it? Who's going to show it to them? It all starts with how we see ourselves. And then it goes from there to how we treat others. I can imagine some people asking you the same question that the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples. Why do you hang out with people like that? Or maybe the question would come like this. Why does your church, why does adventure welcome people like that? If anybody ever asks you that question, don't, don't be discouraged by it. I'd actually suggest that you get a really big smile on your face. Because it's one of the biggest compliments anyone could ever pay you. Because what they have just done is ask you, why is it that you act like Jesus? And if you, you want to know the right answer, there's really two things to say. First of all is, well, I'm one of those people. And adventure is a church where no one is ever too sick to get well. Will you pray with me? Lord, it is um, great to think about um, how you accept us as we are. I'm grateful for that in my life. I'm grateful for those here that have a relationship with you and have had that experience of your mercy the experience of knowing that their relationship with you is as if nothing was ever wrong. We want to say thank you for that. Lord, help us to understand, as you've said this morning, that um, healed people show mercy. Lord, help us right now think about some people in our lives that need mercy. Help us to see them differently. Help us to see them through your eyes. And Lord, most of all, help us to love them in the way that you have loved us to show your mercy. Lord, I know that there may be people here this morning who are still um, struggling with the things that are wrong in their life. They've never really said yes to the healing that comes from you, never said yes to getting well through Jesus, to becoming a changed person. Lord, I want to pray for them as well. I want to pray that today would be a day to say yes, a day to admit I need a cure, and I know that that cure comes from Jesus, and I want to receive it. If you're here this morning and that's you, I just want to invite you right now, right where you are, to just say in your own words to Jesus, I need to get well. Will you make me well? I trust you 
And I want you to be the cure, Jesus, that gives me a new life. If you've said that prayer to Jesus this morning, while everyone else is, has their heads bowed, their eyes closed, would you just raise your hand right where you are? Just raise your hand and say, yeah, I, I said that prayer. I want to get well through Jesus today. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for changing us, for making us the people that you always intended us to be. We pray in your name. Amen.